I thought tonight I really need to speak on this matter of the Isaiah chapter 40. So would you turn to that? You must have heard it somewhere. Are you sure you weren't asleep dreaming it? No. no, I preached it once at the main Seattle church years ago in 1985. It was a long time ago. You've got a good long memory, brother. That's fine. You what? You remember it. So, you want to go home now? I may, I may switch to something else if you like. But it won't do you any harm if you heard it before Seattle to hear it again. There's plenty else to preach, but that's what the Lord's laid upon my heart for tonight. Now, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, <coughs> exalted. <coughs> Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, this is not the only place where this uh, uh, thing is, th this uh, statement is made. It's also made in Luke chapter 3. We needn't turn to it, but when John the Baptist was coming, uh, it was said of him that he was a voice crying in the wilderness, and this was quoted. But it's a little different in Luke than it is here in Isaiah, because it says, instead of saying, every valley shall be raised up it says in Luke every valley shall be filled and instead of saying um, the rough ground shall become level it says the crooked places shall be made straight now the reason for the difference is that it's a translation from what's called the Septuagint which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures and in the Septuagint, sometimes the words are translated a little differently. It doesn't make any difference. It's still the Word of God. Now, I like the Luke version, so I want to quote that. In the desert, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made plain or smooth. Now, this is a great day for road building. And, of course, America is always the first with everything. And you led the world, really, in building great freeways. Then Germany followed with the autobahns, and England, always last, comes with the motorways. And England's, of course, a little country. It's only about the size of Colorado, if you like to know that. Uh, and uh, so it's, 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 it's crisscrossed with these motorways. And we've got to get from one place to the other, and the motorways make a lot of difference. And if you want to, um, if you want to get somewhere, take a motorway. Now, way back in the Roman days, they made beautiful straight roads, 
And way back in the days of Isaiah, they did it. Because kings wanted to travel and armies, they wanted to get quickly to places. So they had their road builders, their civil engineers, if you like, going ahead, and they made these straight, smooth roads. Now, if you want a motorway or a freeway, it's got to be flat, and if possible, it's got to be straight. So there's a lot of work to be done. You've got to uh, fill in valleys, You've got to level mountains, you've got to straighten crooked places, and you've got to turf out all the boulders and the stones, and you've got to make the rough places smooth, because you've got to make a motorway. Now, I believe this has a, 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 refer a, a relevance to revival. I've been involved in several revivals, and one of them was in the Hebrides uh, off the coast of Scotland uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the 40s. Uh, when there was an extraordinary movement of God. And the man who God used was a man called Duncan Campbell. He was a real Scot. And he, he, I knew him quite personally. And he said, Revival is the coming of God among his people. The coming of God among his people. Which is exactly what Isaiah 40 is about. You see, it says... Um, Verse 10, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. And Isaiah 40 is one of the unique chapters of the Bible about the greatness of God. It shows how, how God is greater than the universe. He's greater than all the idol gods. He's greater than all the great nations. They're nothing before him. And then he's, 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 he's greater than everything. And this God is the God of his people. And in wonderful poetic language, the, the prophet Isaiah describes in one picture after another how great God is. We need to see, brethren, the greatness of God. But this great God wants to come among people. He wants to reach people. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross. He sent the Holy Spirit. And he is God. And the Holy Spirit wants to reach people. That's why you're out in Germany. So this has a missionary context. But he wants to reach people in America and in Seattle and in this area. How is he going to reach people? He came in Jesus. He's come in the Spirit. He wants to reach people through his own people, through his church, through the body. Now, if this highway is going to be made... It means a lot of preparation, a lot of work of reconstruction. And as I see revival, it's not just a, a great whoosh from heaven and then everything's perfect. It is a work of the Spirit in our lives, dealing with us and working through us and reaching people more and more and more. And if this is going to happen, if God is going to get a highway, he's got to remove the hindrances. And the four things have got to be dealt with in our lives. And these four things have happened in, and still happening in my own life. And only as they do can God get a free way through one's life to other people. First of all, the valleys have got to be exalted. Every valley shall be exalted. Now, valleys are low and depressed places and the surface of the earth. There are great valleys like... Grand Canyon, if you like, and Great Rift Valley in Kenya, and others, and there are many small valleys. 
but you cannot make a freeway through valleys. You've got to fill them in. You've got to lift them up. And these valleys are depressed states in our lives. Negative states, if you like. And we've all got them. There's one called guilt. We've had some wonderful meetings in, 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 in Seattle and the, and, the, and the weekend conference we had. And there's been a lot of counseling. And uh, not, not a few people have come with a great sense of guilt. One guy said to me, it's just like a great mountain on me. I don't know how to get free from it. And people can be in guilt. Peter was in guilt. After he denied the Lord, he was right there on his face. He felt he could never be forgiven. He could never look Jesus in the face again. He was in a valley of guilt. You may be that. Uh, there's a valley of fear. There are people who are always afraid of things. They have phobias. But ordinary fears. They, they fear the future. They're afraid of sickness. They're afraid they're going to die, perhaps. They're afraid of other people. Uh, maybe afraid of heights. All sorts of fears. And we all have them. And they are negative things and they hinder the Lord. Then there's doubt. When you can't trust the Lord. You can't believe the word. You're always doubting things. I had a guy came for counseling about that this weekend. He said, oh, I'm plagued with doubts. And you can't go on with the Lord if you're just in the valley of doubt all the time. Then there's this valley of inferiority. People have a sense that they're no good. They have a low self-image, as they say. And their favorite phrase is, I can't. You know, would you pray? No, I can't. Uh, would you like to teach Sunday school? No, I can't. And they're always inferior. Always comparing themselves with other people to the disadvantages of valley of inferiority. Other people in valley of disappointment. They've been disappointed in the church that they were. There was division or a split. All things they believed didn't turn out as they thought and they get disappointed. Oh, what a valley I had. I belonged to, to Christians and I thought they were the only people that were going to heaven. They were the only true people, um, the only true body of Christ on earth. And then I got disillusioned with them because I found wrong things going on. And in the end I got so disappointed and disillusioned that I nearly lost my faith. And for three whole months I was in a valley of terrible darkness. And praise God he rescued me from it. But disappointment with other Christians, disappointment with your marriage, disappointment with life, disappointment with your job, whatever it may be, can be an awful valley. And you could just go on and on in that valley. And it leads to despair and defeat, emptiness, maybe sorrow, maybe loss, all these valleys, many of them. Now the disciples were like this after the cross. And the night that Jesus was crucified, they all got in the valley. Peter had denied the Lord three times. Thomas couldn't believe that he could rise from the dead. Others were disappointed. They said, well, we thought it had been he that would have delivered Israel, but it's the third day now and nothing's happened. Two on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they were all afraid. It says they shut themselves in an upper room for fear of the Jews. And they locked the door. Because it was a terrible world. And they thought they were all going to die. Panic-stricken, all in a valley. Now, if you're in these, one of these valleys, this negative state, God can't use you. God can't get through. It's a blockage. It's a hindrance. 
And Matthew Henry, the great Puritan expositor, says, God is always hindered by our depressed states. He really is. But now, how do you exalt a valley? I mean, you can't go to a valley and pick it up, lift it up. How do you exalt a guy who's, or a church, if you like, that's in this depressed state? And many churches are. They just wallow in their valley. How do you lift them up? Fill them. It's the simplest way. I saw, used to see a valley in, in, in Dartmoor, in, in uh, west of England, near where we lived. And uh, we used to take the kids up there on the moors sometimes. It was nice. And we looked over one day on this valley, and it was dreadful. There it was, great big valley. And there wasn't a thing growing in it, just uh, dead trees. And there was an old ruined house, and it was ugly and miserable and useless. But one day we went there, it was completely changed. They turned it into a reservoir. Simple. They blocked it off, let the streams flow in. It was brimming with water. Beautiful sight. And what's more, it was supplying third of Plymouth with water and a valley that was dry and useless changed completely because it was filled I saw another one once it was a dirty old valley uh, I used to go and preach to the place and I stayed in the house and they looked over the valley and they should dump all the garbage in that valley it was terrible and you can be like a valley full of garbage you know moral garbage spiritual garbage the devil's chucked it all in and, and you're no good. And one day I went there and it was completely changed because they turned it into a golf course. They'd, I don't know how they'd done it. They'd got masses of earth and they'd filled that valley and it was a beautiful green. It was part of a golf course. I couldn't believe my eyes. You can change a valley if you fill it. And that's what the Holy Spirit's come to do. He's come to fill us. Jesus said, you, you know, you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you in the day of Pentecost. These poor, miserable, hopeless, uh, unbelieving, uh, doubting, fearing, futurist disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were completely changed, men of power, men of vision. Jesus fills valleys. I want to tell you, if you've got a valley tonight, Jesus is here to fill it. And he fills it with grace. Grace fills the valley. Grace is like water. I've several times stood by Yosemite Falls in California. I love Yosemite Park. I stood at the foot of those falls the first time I was there. About 3,800 feet, I think, those falls, or something like that. The highest waterfall in the world. Stood at the bottom, and I looked right up those thousands of feet and saw that water pouring over those granite cliffs at the top there. I mean, I could never reach it. But it came right to my feet. And I could stoop down and drink the water. And that's what grace is. Grace is God coming from his infinite heights and glory right where you are. He's come in Jesus. He comes in the Holy Spirit to meet your need. And there at the foot of the Yosemite Falls was a great big pool. And the, and the falls was filling that pool all the time and flowing into the Merced River. It went down through California. It came from those heights, and that's what grace is. I'm a great believer in grace, aren't you? Every time I've got a valley, I bring and say, Lord, I believe your grace is sufficient for this valley, whatever it is, my doubts, my fears, my darkness, my inferiority, my disappointment, my disillusionment, whatever it is. If I repent of those things, bring them to Jesus. You've got to repent of them. 
grace will fill the valley. Praise the Lord for that. Hallelujah. Remember that next time you come into a valley. Sometimes we have a whole chain of valleys. Some people go from one valley to another. But grace can fill them all. Secondly, it says, every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now, if, if valleys are depressed places, mountains are exalted places. What do you think these mountains are? Well, Isaiah tells us. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 17, talks about uh, every high thing that exalts itself against the Lord shall be brought low. Every high thing, every exalted thing. And in chapter 14, verse 7, there's a prophecy about the king of Babylon. And he exalts himself. And it maybe is a picture of Satan. He exalts itself in, in, his, in his arrogance. And it says you're going to be brought down. And you are brought down. And God does that. He hates pride. Because pride was Satan's original sin, it seems. You know, it says in uh, Timothy, is it? about a novice you be careful because he may be fall into pride and the sin of the devil and I believe the, the scripture indicates the devil was once a very beautiful archangel maybe he's called Lucifer the son of the morning and he was so beautiful he was, the, he was the guardian of the glory of God and then iniquity was found in him and he says in Isaiah I will exalt myself above the throne of God I will be like the Most High. Because he wanted to exalt himself against God, he was cast down. And then he came and he tempted man, and he said to man, who was made in God's image, and was made to, to reveal God, to be expression of God, he said, you, you, you eat the fruit, and you'll be like gods, and you'll know good and evil, you won't need God, you can be your own gods. And they fell for that, and pride came into our human race. It's been there ever since, and we've all got it. Every one of us. Who of us here is truly humble? Not one of us. And there are many forms of pride. There's that arrogance that, you know, thinks you're better than everybody else. And you want to push people around. You strut about. And many people like that. And so many of the great people in the Bible, like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar and others, were arrogant people. And they wanted to be great Lots of people like that in the world today. And there are people in the church like that. Pistol of John, it speaks about Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. So many problems come in churches because people want to have the preeminence. They don't let Jesus have the preeminence. They want to be boss. They want to push others around. Arrogance. Then there can be uh, loving flattery. You like people to say things, nice things about you. you. Like people to push, lift you up. And we preachers can be prone to that. Uh, Spurgeon once said, when uh, a woman came to him after a great sermon he preached, he said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, I think you're wonderful. That was a wonderful message. And he said, yes, the devil told me that at the foot of the, foot of the pulpit as I came down. He knew the temptation to think he was great. Even Spurgeon was such a humble man. Many forms of pride. You see, there's uh, boasting. Uh, you know, you talk about yourself all the time. I've been guilty of that. Telling success stories about yourself. 
Or let other people know what a wonderful Christian you are, how long you prayed and how much you read your Bible and how you've witnessed and everything. That you never say anything about your faults and failures. You'll never reveal that weak side. And we live like that, you know. I remember an African coming to my church in Torquay where I was once and he'd been in the revival and he, they, they learned to be really transparent there. And uh, one of the deacons asked a question and said, you know, uh, Mr. Voke and I, we see eye to eye on all biblical matters and theological matters and we work together, but I never feel we have real fellowship. Uh, it worries me. Why is that? You know what this African said? He said, well, he said, you go out in the nice clear night, he said, and you see the moon in the sky. And you look at the moon, you say, oh, isn't that beautiful, that moon? But he said, you only see the bright side of the moon. There is another side that you've never seen, the dark side of the moon. So you never really see the whole moon. Well, we wondered what he was talking about. And he said, now, when you, when you work with Mr. Voke, he said, Stanley, and you, you, you share with him, he said, um, you always show the bright side, don't you? But he said, isn't there a dark side you never let him see? And the chap sort of blushed to the roots of his hair, and he said, yes. And then he turned to me, to my consternation, he said, and when you have fellowship with this brother, you're always showing the bright side, don't you? And isn't that a dark side you never show him? And I blushed to the roots of my hair and I said, Yes, yes. And he said, So you, you work together like a lovely pair of hypocrites. No wonder you don't have fellowship. Now there's a point there, see? You don't show other people all the dark side, but sometimes we never show anything. We never admit we have need. We never confess our faults. We never tell them we've had to repent of anything we're always showing the nice side I can't have fellowship because of pride pride likes to show the nice side it doesn't like to show the nasty side dark side, it doesn't like to be humbled and then there's um, self-righteousness there's a form of that you see bossiness now you know we like to boss people around my wife was here, she's been here, and she's given testimonies about this. And she says that she had young twin brothers, and they were naughty boys. She was five years older than they were. And so she always had to boss them. She grew up to be bossy. She used to boss me. And I didn't like it. And then I'd sulk, because I was proud. And here's a, somebody being bossy and somebody being sulky. We're having a wonderful time together, I can tell you. <laughs> And the Lord has a deal with this. And I remember one morning when she'd bossed me around about something or other, and I went off to the office, and I thought, dear, oh dear Lord, what am I going to do with this woman? Why did you let me marry her? You know, and so on. And the Lord dealt with her about it. And my phone rang in my office, and I picked it up thinking it was the Archbishop of Canterbury or somebody. I said, hello, Mr. Volks speaking here, you know, Morton Baptist Church. No, I said, this is Bossy Boots, Bossy Boots speaking. I'm sorry, darling. Will you forgive me? It's my wife. Bossy boots. <laughs> Valley had been brought down many times. One occasion I got very exalted over my wife. I thought, now I'm the head, you know. She's got to do everything I say. Because she wouldn't do everything I say, I got angry. And I let her have it. I said, you should be submissive. 
Why don't you submit? Blah, 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 blah. And she didn't like that. Well, the way I spoke, I went off to my study. I got down to the Word. I'm going to prepare the message for tonight. Now I've got a Bible study on Philippians chapter 2. Happened to be, so I opened Philippians chapter 2 and I start reading it. And I read, um, <clears throat> Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, <laughs> who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and took the very nature of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became... I said, oh Lord, why have you made me read this? Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit was saying to me, Jesus was the head over all. He was the Son of God, and he humbled himself, and he used his own position in the deity to humble himself and empty himself. And here you are, a little wretched sinner, and you exalt yourself over your wife and you get angry because she won't submit on everything. You need to humble yourself. And that God showed me the cross. I was absolutely broken. I was so broken I couldn't get to the kitchen quick enough to get on my knees and ask her forgiveness. You see, this, this exaltation has got to be brought down. And grace does it. It's just pride that sits moaning about our lot. Poor me. And then there's a criticism, you know, we criticize. So easy to criticize, isn't it? To find fault. Find fault with the pastor, you find fault with the elders, you find fault with other Christians, other churches. Everybody's wrong except you. Pride. Just pride. Selfish pride. Every mountain. Now, Paul had this problem. And uh, Paul was a Pharisee, and one thing about the Pharisees is they were proud, I can tell you. They thought they knew all the answers, and they were the people, they were the righteous people. And Paul gives a whole list in Philippians chapter 3 of what a wonderful Pharisee he was. He got everything. He says, if any man has reason to glory in the flesh, I more. I can do it better than anyone else, because I was... Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I was circumcised the eighth day, I came of a good family, you know, I, this, and he ends up by touching the righteousness of the law, blameless. You couldn't knock any spots off me. I was absolutely it. Proud man. So proud that he hated the name of Jesus. He hated these humble Christians. He wanted to get rid of them. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you notice what happened to Paul? It wasn't a nice sort of gentle conversion. It wasn't Jesus standing at the door and saying, Paul, just let me in, will you please? I know you're, you're really longing to have me and you're a really needy soul and I'm waiting to come into your life. No, no, no. Jesus speaks from heaven, shines a light, smashes him to the earth. He falls in the dust and he's blinded. He's just finished. He cries out, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Lord, what do you want me to do? And he's, he's, he's finished. The mountain's brought down. And his passion and his pride is in the dust. Because he's seen Jesus. He comes to know what Jesus, who Jesus is and how he died upon the cross. And he calls himself the chief of sinners. Not fit to be an apostle. Because he persecuted the church of God. And it's grace that does that again. I want to stand as a testimony tonight as a very proud man whom God over the years has had to humble and humble and humble again and again.
not just through circumstances, but by letting me see the cross. You know, Isaac Watts wrote that great hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, my poor contempt on all my pride. Because pride can't stand in the light of the cross, where you see the glorious Son of God made sin for you, and pouring out His spotless blood, and suffering all the wrath of God against your sin. There's no place for pride there. We need to repent of pride. We need to repent of every form of pride. Whatever it is, jealousy, envy, criticism, self-esteem, self-pity, the lot at the cross. We need to live at the cross. And then thirdly it says, um, notice, um, that the crooked places should be made straight. Now you can't make a highway on crooked places. You've got to have a straight way. And God is a straight God. He's a God of righteousness. And he says, if he's going to get away in our lives, we've got to become righteous people. And there's a lot of crookedness in us. Dishonesty. You know, it may be dishonesty with money. Some of you have been dishonest with money. Dishonesty with, with, with reporting things. Instead of saying the truth, you exaggerate, you twist it. You don't tell lies, but you are a bit compromising with the truth, as they say. Somebody says, it isn't a lie I told, it's a terminological inexactitude. Well, I don't care what you call it, if it's not the truth, it's not the truth. Speak the truth, live the truth. That's what Ephesians says. But we don't, you see. We twist the truth. Because we're twisted. That's the way, meaning of the word iniquity. Iniquity means twistedness. And we've all got iniquity in our heart. Uh, sometimes uh, the word is perverse. To be perverse means you're not easy to live with. There's a twistedness about you. I've been like that. One of the great things the Lord's had to do with in my life is this tendency to be dishonest. And to be unreal. You see, we can be so unreal. We can put on a, 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 an unreal look. Put, a, put on a special face. A, you know, our pious face. But we've got another face as well. We have as well. And that's the one that God's concerned about. The ugly face. The angry face. The twisted face. Or we can put on a, a, even a special voice. We have people like that in England. You see, they talk in a normal voice, but... When they answer the telephone, they speak in another voice. See? And, uh, no good. Must be real. And we're not real with one another. Who of us is really transparent? See, John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, and that means transparency, we have fellowship. So there's a lot of dishonesty and crookedness has to be straightened. Jacob was like that. Jacob was such a crooked man. He was always out for his own ends, wasn't he? And he, he didn't mind who he deceived if he could get what he wanted. We're all like that. Ask the Lord to show you where you are self-seeking in any way and where you are willing to twist things in order to get your own way. And the Lord loved Jacob, although he was crooked, and he pursued him 
and he straightened him. And when he, when he met him at Jabbok and touched the hollow of his thigh, crippled him, Jacob was never dishonest again that we read of. God had dealt with it. God's got to deal with that in us. And the final thing is this. Every rough place should be made smooth. And the rough places are the place where there are sharp stones and jagged rocks. And you can't build a road over that. You've got to clear them out. And before the, the tarmac is laid down, or whatever it is, the whole place has got to be smoothed. And those rough places are the, the rough places in our lives where we lose our temper. You lose your temper with the kids. You shout at home at your husband. Your husband, you shout at your wife. It's amazing how people can seem to be very spiritual people. And they can know all the truths of the Bible and crucifixion with Christ and being a new creature, a new creature in Christ and new, all about the body and all about the millennium. You can know everything from Genesis to Revelation. And you're rough. I've known it. You can lose your temper like that. You get grumpy when you get up in the morning and growl at people like a bear. Make it difficult for others in the family. Shout at the kids. And, and in the church you can be like that. I've seen a lot of rough, rough treatment in churches. I've seen people sit at the Lord's table and you, you'd think the butter wouldn't melt in their mouths. Oh, they're so pious. They sing about the cross and about heaven. And they break the bread and they're so sweet. You say, oh, what a lovely church this is. But you see the next Wednesday at the church business meeting. Those same people. And there's some church business they don't like. Some problem has to be discussed. And all the claws come out. And I've seen people say nasty things about one another. I was even in a, a church once of very biblical people. And I saw them actually fighting with their fists with one another. Because they got so angry. And the whole meeting split up in confusion. Because the brethren are fighting one another. You think impossible. No it isn't. Because we've all got that roughness in us. And Jesus has to deal with it. He's had to deal with it in me. You see, Peter and John were like that. Peter and, Peter, and, uh, Peter and James, they were wonderful disciples. Oh, sorry, John and James and John, not Peter and James. James and John, they were, they were two of the three special disciples, Peter, James and John. You remember that? They were always close to Jesus. And one day James and John were going with Jesus into a certain village. Oh, they loved Jesus, they prayed with him, they, they were so pious and holy. And they went into this village and the villagers wouldn't receive Jesus, they were nasty. And James and John lost their temper. And they said to Jesus, Lord, why don't you call down fire from heaven and destroy this lot? Like Elisha did. Well, whatever Elisha did, that's another matter. But Jesus wasn't going to do it. And Jesus rebuked them and he said, You don't know what spirit you're of. I did not come into the world to destroy people. I came to save them. And so I love these people. If they won't have us, all right, we'll go somewhere else. You say, what can you do with two disciples like that? want to go around burning people up you know this that God dealt with those people Jesus did Pentecost did the Holy Spirit did James became the leader of the church at Jerusalem and he was, he was the first one to die for the faith read in Acts how Herod took hold of James and put him in prison cut his head off and James died for Jesus didn't call down fire anymore he just gave his life for the Saviour. 
And what about John? Oh, John he lived to be nearly a hundred. He even beat me. And uh, he wrote the epistle, the first epistle, which was the epistle of love. He wrote the gospel. And you read the gospel of John. There's a lot about love in it. He, he says Jesus gave the, the, the great commandment that you love one another. And when he wrote his epistle, right from beginning to end, it was about walking in love, loving one another. So little children love one another. Little children love one another. And the tradition says when John was an old man, nearly a hundred, and he couldn't walk anymore, and they carried him into church on a stretcher at Ephesus, where he was an elder, all he could say was, reaching out on either side, little children love one another, little children love one another. He sort of died with those words on his lips. He was the apostle of love. He was the disciple who leaned on Jesus' bosom. Because he was full of love. Jesus did that. I want Jesus to make me a man of love, don't you? And in our marriage, to love one another so much that you couldn't bear to be rough. You couldn't bear to hurt your wife or your husband. You love and you care. And you're like that. With the, and if you, if you do lose your temper, you'll go and repent and apologize and ask forgiveness. Just like you said I did with my boy. I must have told that story. We've had to repent many times to our children about our roughness when they were little. And they've grown up to repent themselves. And in the church, if there's any roughness in your heart toward another brother or sister, any lack of love, any critical spirit, any resentment, any bitterness, whatever it is that's rough, take it to the cross and repent of it. Every rough place should be made smooth. These four things have to happen. Valley is filled, mountains brought down, crooked places straightened, rough places made smooth. And what happens? Isaiah says, all flesh the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And Luke says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now we want people to hear of the salvation of God, but they've got to see it. And what people see in Christians may be more important than what they hear from them. Because it says, that what you are thunders so loud that the world can't hear what you say. Our life must speak. And what will speak to people is when they see these things happening in our lives. That the man who's so miserable, or the woman who's such a, a whimpering pain in the neck, as we say in England, gets on everybody's wick because she's always moaning and groaning and negative, she gets filled with the Spirit. And she repents of it all and she becomes a, a, a buoyant, cheerful, happy, outgoing woman. They say, what on earth happened to Mary or Jane? Who's done that? They say, Jesus done it. He's filled her. And here's this guy that's so proud, he struts around and pushes people around, they can't stand the sight of him. Or oh, this woman who's so, so bossy. And she gets humbled and changed at the cross. She becomes a humble, loving person. Say, who's that? Jesus done it. And this person is untrustworthy, you can't trust him with money, you don't know whether he's telling the truth or lies, and he, he becomes a truthful, straight person. The world takes notice of that. And the man who's rough becomes gentle and loving like Jesus. The glory of the Lord is revealed. The glory of the Lord is seen 
when the image of Christ is formed in us. The world sees it. And people see the salvation of God. That's got to happen with all of us. And if you want uh, this area to know about Jesus, let God have a highway. Let him deal with the obstacles. Whatever they are, take them to the cross and people will see the salvation of God. You see, people come to my house and they say, what a lovely garden you've got. If I showed you a picture of it, you'd say, what a beautiful garden. Yes, but it wasn't always like that. Do you know that garden, when we came, was full of rubbish, were left by the previous owners, the builders had been in the house and they'd done work and they dumped all the stuff out of the patio in the back. It was just a perfect mess. We didn't know what to do with it. Somebody said there's a dump down the road. It's about a mile from you, a dump, a great big dump. And it's run by the, the local government. And you can pack all your stuff up and put it in the boot of your car or whatever, take it down to the dump and throw it on the dump. I'd never been to a dump. I didn't like dumps. They seemed unpleasant kind of places. But we did. We, we took all our stuff down to the dump. When we got there, we found a lot of other people there. And they were all hurling all this stuff onto the dump. And we don't uh, put it in you know, containers in England. We just chuck it on the dump. All the rubbish went on the dump. We went again and again to the dump. Every time we came, went to the dump, we came back feeling so happy. And I said to Dorian, oh, I feel so so glad we've, we've been there. She said, yes, it's like going to the cross in repentance. With your sin, when you come away, you're free, you're cleansed. Go to the dump, brethren. Go to the dump. Because the cross is the dump. I went to the dump just before we came away because we had a lot of stuff to take. And I saw all this terrible stuff all ranged round. It stank. It was hot weather and they hadn't cleared it yet. And as I looked at it, I thought of Calvary. And I thought of all the sin of the world laid on Jesus, my sin. But I knew this, that very soon those huge big lorries would come and they'd take all that stuff away and they'd get rid of it. That's what Jesus, God, did on the cross. He put away our sin. And you put it away. He put it away in the atonement. You and I must put it away in repentance. Go to the dump. You'll always come back free. Get rid of the hindrances. And that's how our garden became clean. And our patio is beautiful. Because we don't let any rubbish accumulate there. We take it to the dump. Keep the place clean. Make the church like that.